Three, two, one. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Sum Engineering Podcast. Today we have Alex, Alex Chantavi from Lyft, where uh, Alex is a software engineer. And Alex and I are going to talk about a tool, an open source tool that was developed in-house at Lyft, and it's called Cartography. And uh, Cartography is a Python-based tool that consolidates infrastructure assets. And one of the major use cases at Lyft is security. But I'm going to let Alex talk about that. Alex, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so I'm very excited about this episode. So uh, over to you. Um, I'll start. Like, what is Cartography? What, what do you guys do at it with Lyft? At Lyft. Well, thank you for very much for having me, Lars. Uh, Cartography is. Like you said, it's a Python tool that it, it's, uh, grabs infrastructure assets from multiple sources and it aggregates it in a knowledge graph. And the advantage of being able to do that is you're able to make all these connections that would have otherwise been very difficult to see if you're looking at it solely through a table. And b having things be in a graph is very flexible. You can, uh, you can kind of slice and dice that data any way that, uh, you might want to. And uh, the main key scenario, well, one killer app that we use it for is something that I blogged on recently is uh, for container vulnerability management. Um, but before I get too far into that, though, and into the weeds there, the original problem that cartography was set out to solve was around offensive security scenarios. So uh, Backing up even a little bit further, I'll just uh, be the first one to say cartography was not my idea. It was the idea of my mentor, Sasha Faust. And uh, the original thing was, well, if we are red teamers, if we are looking at uh, a particular environment, trying to identify targets, then, I mean, there's that whole saying about uh, how an attacker is going to think in terms of a graph, not in terms of a list. And then so they'll be looking for different ways to access these valuable assets. How can they get a map of the environment and find their way to target? And it just made sense to put all of that aggregated in a graph database. So you have your sort of, uh, if you like Harry Potter, your sort of marauders map. How do I get to what I need to go? Mm -hmm. And so... From that perspective, we found that like iterating on that, uh, you can build automation on top of that. Defenders find it very useful because you can see, oh, this is how an attacker might look at my assets, might look at my particular environment. And um, as a defender, it's also really interesting because now you can create a very specialized sort of self-maintaining map, a self-maintaining inventory, and then you can slice and dice that to create those tables because sometimes viewing it in a graph might not be the most intuitive thing or useful thing uh, for a specific scenario. If you just want to get, give me a list of all the compute instances all across my AWS accounts, well, you don't really need a picture for that. It's kind of neat and helpful, but sometimes you just want a spreadsheet and then you know, cartography can go and do that for you. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of... Uh, it's so interesting seeing this tool evolve from something that was offensive focused to using it for scenarios that are more defensive focused and also for uh, uh, infra focused. So at Lyft, one of the key applications we use it for is container vulnerability management, where we use it to deliver very specific actionable insights. So um, one of the key things that we wanted to do was uh, 
we run Kubernetes at Lyft. So there's about a thousand different services that we have, mm -hmm. and they all are built from a set of base images. And then, so if you are going to, uh, if you want, to, we, we wanted to continually report on what are the vulnerabilities that affect a given service. And we also wanted to make sure that that was, uh, that these asks that we sent to the service teams was as actionable as possible. Mm -hmm. So, so let's say that I have the, I don't know, the payment service and I have my payment service and then I scan the payment service. I get back a big list of vulnerabilities. Uh, now I could just take every single one of those CVEs and then send it to that service team and call it a day. Be like, oh, I'm done as a security team. Mm. Well, that's. That's not really acceptable because if anyone who's like really worked with that before, you'll find that uh, you scan that image. And then a lot of time your scanner may find like a hundred different CVEs on there. Mm -hmm. Some of which may or may not actually tell you that, oh, it has a fixed version or not a fixed version. But the main technical roadblock here is you'll find all those problems, but you won't know as the service owner of the payment service, how do I actually fix them? In certain case, in most of those cases, to fix those vulns, they would have been introduced by a parent image and not yourself. So mm -hmm. you will need to wait for your parent image to update themselves and then consume that fix. Or in certain cases, maybe you introduced that vulnerability yourself to the payment service. Using a graph-based approach, we are able to build this dependency tree and then calculate, okay, these are the things that you yourself can actually fix. These are the other problems that you must wait on from your parent images to update themselves and then cascade those changes down the entire dependency tree. And we built, uh, so this problem lent itself really well to a graph shape solution. And we were able to build automation on top of that that makes some reconciliation of, okay, well, you have, we've done a follow-up scan on that image and all of those problems that we previously scanned before, they're all gone. And then so now we can go back and close the tickets that were previously associated that, uh, that we previously filed. And so we kind of build this automated issue management system powered by a graph backend. And that's, uh, that, I'm gonna be giving a little bit more of a talk later on um, at a B-side San Francisco, I think uh, next month. Um, going way more in depth on that, but uh, there is a blog post on that too. Fascinating. Um, there's so much content in there and I'm going to ask you, I always use the term double click some of these concepts. Now, this is a pretty nerdy podcast, but I think <laughs> I, I, I feel like sometimes even it, it's always helpful for the audience if we maybe go back to explaining a few concepts. Um, I'm trying to pull it up, but uh, uh what's his name, David Heinemeyer, like the whole thing about um, their migration back into uh, 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 on-premise. And he laid out in the blog post how, you know, using Kubernetes, like you may have one pod, but here are all the additional additional adjacent or attached services. Um, can you maybe explain to the audience a little bit how um, the nested character of, of infrastructure and how that lends itself to capturing that information into a graph. Is, is that something you can elaborate on a little bit? Um, just the basics of how that stuff I works? Can, I can wave my hands around and try. I'll, uh, That's great. Thank you for reining me in. I will, 
I'm a little excited here to like nerd out and then talk about all these things in uh, in a ridiculous amount of detail as much as I can. But um, oh, this I'll is the, the place first... to do it. This is oh, the place perfect, to do perfect. it. This is the place to do it. Perfect. I will. Um, I'll preface this by saying that I am not a Kubernetes or infra expert. Mm -hmm. um, so my understanding of how this all works, though, is uh, with, so Kubernetes is basically orchestrated containers, right? So yeah. you want to run your containers in a, a whole bunch of microservices, and then you use uh, images to do all of that. Mm -hmm. And as part of a, if for efficiency, every service doesn't want to maintain every single aspect of their image. They don't mm -hmm. want to say, oh, this is my Linux layer. This is the layer that goes on top of that. This is the layer. No, they want to, uh, you want to delegate that to the work. Uh, I, I guess a large enough tech company will delegate that work to their infra team to manage those images and say, this is our approved Linux image that you should use. This is our approved Python image that you should use. And so that way it's just like, okay, well, that way your product teams and then uh, don't need to worry so much about infra. They can just focus on application. Mm -hmm. And so while, while I was going into that earlier with my example of container issue management was we wanted to keep our app developers working on the app stuff where if they get a vulnerability, they don't, uh, they need to know exactly, okay, well, is this something that I can actually fix? Or is this something that infra needs to fix? And if it's something that infra needs to fix, don't send me that ticket. Send that to the proper owner. Mm -hmm. Great, and um, and and uh, you know later on, I think you you have a little demo prepared as well, and we can see how, exactly how it works. Um, can we? What was when when? And, and by the way, I, I I love how you're so humble about how you're not the guy who invented it, but I mean it's very obvious from from your blog post and how you talk about it is that you're probably the main maintainer of cryptography right now. Um, there's probably no one who's got better knowledge about it than you. And is, uh, so can you talk a little bit about when, when you started, when you guys started developing cryptography in-house, what was the trigger? Like what was the why now? And, and what led you guys down a path of developing an in-house? I mean, clearly you have tons of skills at Lyft, right? Which, but that doesn't mean you have to do it, right? There's, plenty of other stuff you can work mm -hmm. on. So what, what was the genesis uh, of cartography? I think that at that time when we went open source with it, well, actually, I think we've been open source with cartography, uh, maybe just a little, we think we might have just passed our fourth anniversary of being open source. So that's kind of, that's really awesome. That's really exciting. Yeah. Um, I think that the main genesis of this was that at that time, there wasn't really anything that did what cartography did. Mm -hmm. There were other similar graph-based security tools out there. Um, the main one that comes to mind is something like Bloodhound, which is uh, focused on Active Directory scenarios mm -hmm. and a very, very powerful tool, very powerful approach. And at the what we wanted to do, though, is that... Uh, the main thing that cartography was trying to do was offer this sort of flexibility and offer this... Uh, um, multiple data sources, how do you link those things together? And at that time, it wasn't really there. And then we, and Sasha had done like a lot of uh, experimentation, had a lot of experience and a lot of passion toward pursuing this. And then so uh, it was, well, let's, let's get this done. You know, this is something that we want to share and build a community out of. And then we've learned a lot from taking a project open source and then 
making a lot of friends along the way and uh, seeing uh, what works, what doesn't work in open source. And uh, I think that that's been probably one of the biggest highlights of my own career. Yeah, I, I mean, we just need to look at the GitHub stars here. It's it's super, I mean, cartography is super popular. And um, so can you walk us a little bit through the technical details of how cartography works, starting with the data sources, how you acquire data from those sources, essentially how you build your data pipeline, right? And then your mm -hmm. backend, which I believe is Neo4j, the, the graph mm -hmm. database, how you get it out, you know, like the, the different queries I can write, like walk us through that, how that works. Sure. Yeah. So cartography in open source is designed to be as simple as possible, not requiring many different um, dependencies or anything like that. So it's simply just a Python CLI tool that you go and install with a pip install cartography. And the way that you would set it up is through a number of different config files and Essentially, all that it does is it will talk to a number of APIs. So you can talk to your AWS API, your Okta API. It'll grab the data from there, and then it will load it to a graph database. And then the database that we chose is Neo4j. Um, the main reason why we went with Neo4j is, we, is because we really liked the Cypher query language. It lets you sort of, uh, I guess, the... The way that I would put it is it lets you draw ASCII art and uh, match paths based on that. And mm -hmm. once you get past that initial hump, that learning curve, it's extremely expressive. And then it uh, you, you grow to like it. Some It's very polarizing, though. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, like, yeah. <laughs> like, essentially, though, like, that's the most simple setup where we wanted to keep this uh, idea where anybody with a laptop or... Um, Anybody with a laptop can just grab the tool and then like uh, spin up a uh, Neo4j database using like Docker or whatever you want, and then just like run the CLI tool. Boom, there you got it. You don't have to install any. It's it's not super opinionated about what infra you are going to run it on. And in some cases, this has sort of made uh, future technical decisions slower, but at this trade off of like having. Uh, we've made we made a conscious decision to try to like let the barrier for entry be as low as possible. Uh, mm -hmm. we, uh, I guess like the example there is like we could have said that oh you know you must run this on an EC2 instance. You must put this with uh, some very specific infra components such as a uh, like AWS SQS simple queue service. You must put this with like another other data platform type stuff. And you know if we went that direction with like more involved infra, then we probably could get more powerful things like more real-time refreshes and other things yeah, like that. But, you know, again, simplicity first for uh, for this purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, I mean, yeah, real-time, uh, it's always the question. Everyone wants real-time, <laughs> but do you actually need it? Um, how often by default, how often do you um, collect data from the APIs? How often, if, by default, if, you, if I install a cartography? Ah. So if you, by default, if you install cartography, you just have the CLI, you hit enter. That's all it is. Cartography is very dumb in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it's up to the deployer to decide, do I want to put this as part of a cron job? Do I want to put this as part of an airflow job? Do I want to make my own ETL with this? How do I want my deployment to look like? And there's a number mm -hmm. of different considerations. Uh, 
in general, I would recommend simple is better. Uh, at uh, at Lyft, we've done um, we've gone back and forth about okay, well, we started off with a very um, what you call a very very simple monolithic cron world just to do every single one of your data syncs one by one by one down a list, and then we ran that until it became too slow. And then after that, we decided, okay, well, now we need to split this up into multiple crons. And then we found, oh, wait, now we're running into parallelization problems. Uh, now we're having like some race condition issues. And so then we got to think about, okay, well, uh, if as long as we ensure the property that one resource is synced at any given time, then we can let everything be parallel and then we can get some good speed. And then the next step, the next progression after that would be to migrate to something more powerful or more um, involved like airflow. But, you know, it's a iterative baby steps. Um, what uh, what point? Is, there's many different ways to deploy cartography is my point. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Flexibility. Yeah. I mean, what you just said sounds a lot like, uh, sounds like there's a lot of overlap with the analytics engineering ecosystem, right? What the data ecosystem, like, I mean, you mentioned ETL, we said airflow, orchestration. Um, and it sounds, I mean, that to me always sounds like the, the concept behind it is basically data acquisition, right? Like the, the value right. is getting clean data about the state of your infrastructure. Um, what was your original source? It's AWS, right? Uh, Lyft runs on AWS, I believe. Yes. And, right. uh, well, it, there's like, there's at least a dozen different plugins on there. Like we have Okta, we have GCP, we have G suite, we have a number of different sources in cartography. And then mm -hmm. I guess the main, um, the main thing that uh, I would say is the advantage is that not that we have more coverage of any individual source, but the fact that you can draw relations from one to the other. So if we'll to assume an AWS role because of a trust relationship, and mm -hmm. so the, this cross uh, platform dependencies, those become very interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, and when you build the graph, how do you, how do you capture those dependencies? How do you, how do you, I guess, how do you draw the edges? I mm -hmm. guess is the proper term. Yeah. So I guess uh, a lot of it is based off of domain knowledge of like how we've been, um, mm -hmm. I, I guess when it, um, so we will do things like like what I said with that example with Okta users being able to assume AWS roles. Well, that's a, that's a scenario that's well supported by Okta. And then so we know, all right, well, we know that, I, I mean, I would like to know as a platform owner or um, on the security team, I would like to know what are all of the people that are able to assume a given role in AWS and then can I have visibility on that? Can I answer those questions? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, or I could want to answer the question like, uh, if somebody gets, uh, if somebody gains or loses access, can I watch that happen over time? And then, so can I answer those questions with the graph that I've been maintaining with cartography? So a well-oiled cartography installation is uh, very powerful for like, basically to answer questions. Like if you can think about something where I have an entity and I want to know how it interacts with another, then we've built a set of plugin infrastructure and then modules that let you be able to express that very um, in a straightforward way. So, so that's the heavy lifting you do upfront before the actual data collection happens, right? Like it's not, it just doesn't go out and collects data. It's like, there's a lot of work on your end that goes into that data collection to capture those dependencies. 
It's a little bit of both. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So like uh, the every module will have like this process of getting it and then transforming it and massaging it into a format that uh, uh, Neo4j will be happy with mm-hmm. and then loading it. And then so the loading phase, this is the where the so-called secret sauce is, right? This is where the real value of cartography is, where you have, um, uh, you know, our entire open source community have, has come in and like given um, their own view about how they build their own knowledge graph of mm-hmm. how, how they think about and reason about these um, dependencies and how you would want to relay those relationships between different assets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and as a new user, how much, um, how much knowledge do I need to have about the original data sources versus knowing cartography schema? What's, what's the difference there? I would say that we've tried to be as faithful to the original as possible, but for those gaps, uh, I mean, it's all at some point a human had to make those things. Uh, and mm-hmm. so like there's uh, to capture those things. We have, uh, one of the early decisions we did in open source. I'm very happy with is that we started from the beginning to enforce that everything had to be documented. Like the schema had to be documented that, uh, cause these things can, and it has grown pretty big and we've, uh, struggled with um some of that growth but uh to capture all of that knowledge as a newcomer to the project i would say that we've done or we've put a lot of effort into documentation and there's Mm -hmm. parts that uh need improvement obviously with any sole open source project but we've tried to stay as complete and thorough as possible there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what were some unexpected insights that you guys got once you've been, you know, developing, hmm. you know, I mean, more sources, right? More connections. What were some of the things where you said, like, "Holy cow! I like this is amazing." <laughs> I, there must have been something like that. <laughs> uh, I guess like there's certain situations where you find, uh, "What is this account that I don't know about? Why do Why do I have a, an asset that trusts it? Uh, how do I find out more about that?" Mm. Or why do I have so many people that can become admin? Uh, why do <laughs> that kind of thing? There's uh, all, all this, all sorts of those. Um, like, I think that what uh, cartography, one of my favorite things to do with cartography is you can use this graph approach to highlight something that is a systemic risk to your organization. And then you can uh, build, I guess, you can build different um, methods to show how you are burning that problem down mm, so if you have okay. if your problem is like uh over over permissioned resources or too many people have access to this one thing well you can we've built numerous different dashboarding tools we've blogged about how you we would how we've done that to show all right well this is the number of admins you have at this point but then it's going down at this other point in time got it and and um who are the consumers of this information? There's obviously you yourself, but how do you how do you distribute this knowledge? Who are the people that are consuming this data, and how do they consume it? What's what's sort of the the interface? Yeah, I think that um, couple. I guess you would have so-called power users that are mm-hmm. um, what you call uh, querying the graph directly, and so they know the query language very, uh, very. Uh, they have deep knowledge of the query language. And then 
you know, I'm not a front end web dev guy. So unfortunately we don't have like a web front end or anything like that. Uh, it's been hard to prioritize something mm -hmm. like that, but we've been able to work around that for a very long time by doing things like, uh, taking, having an ETL job that essentially queries the Neo4j graph database and then extracts that to, uh, to a hive table. And then, so once you have that in hive, then you can do all sorts of fun stuff, like put it on mode dashboard and you get your report that way. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So there's the transformation to something more rows and columns based. Um, yes. If you use classic analytics, interesting. Yeah. Yes. But I would say, yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, I was just going to say that like, uh, the transformation from graph to table is trivial. And then, but the other way around from what we're doing with like, uh, taking the, uh, like AWS API data, whatever API data, and then like, uh, putting it into graph form. That's, that's harder. That's, that takes time. And then it's uh, easy to do wrong. There's all sorts of fiddly things and ways to make that, uh, make mistakes with it and, uh, create a representation that is not uh, correct or has bugs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I am interested in seeing the things like with like what large language models and how they will uh, change this up. I think that, uh, uh but until um, until that comes, I think that having a human perspective on this is what how I imagine these assets to be related to each other, and then representing that in a knowledge graph that's still pretty fun. And it's very powerful, yeah. And um, I'm trying to think about you mentioned something around you know the transformation from the graph to a table is trivial, but the other way around not as much. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Like what, like, um, and I'll be, I mean, I, I can I share that view, right? But um, because the classic ETL ecosystem is around rows and tables, right? And, and mm -hmm. getting that data just even in rows and tables is super valuable. But, but talk a little bit about like, why, why the graph? Why is that valuable at, at that point? The, the, reason uh the power of a graph is that it lets you explore it lets you see many to many relationships in a very easy way it lets you express those things in a way that if you had it in a table uh you would have just it would become intractable like you would have like eight foreign key relationships you'd be doing all kinds of joins all over the place and mm -hmm. then it's just difficult to reason about um obviously like uh but at a graph isn't for everything though and then eventually like if you're building say uh, a state machine, like what I mentioned with like the vulnerability management logic that you'll eventually want it to be like a, some sort of ledger that says that, oh yeah, with a checkbox that says, oh, this issue can be closed or not. So you will want mm -hmm. a table at some point, but your analysis layer with a graph, that is powerful. Um, yeah. And that is powerful in ways that a table can't do because the graph can tell you things like, what is the greatest ancestor where this issue was introduced at. So like from which parent image was this problem uh, introduced at, and then so I need to go all the way up there or other scenarios like uh, uh, this is, this one is um, something I'm very excited about, like as a, somebody with a, with experience in offensive security, where say I get remote code execution on an internet exposed compute instance, and then I'm able to get credentials off of that what is the blast radius of this initial exposure? How many hops can I go in and how much of the infrastructure is exposed due to this initial compromise? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the blast radius. I mean, that's that, that, that term always comes up with a graph. Uh, and um, 
you talked about about this having a human perspective on how these different assets relate to each other. Mm-hmm. When you when you built it and you went to your I'm going I'm going to call them customers. Did you encounter and I'm I'm asking is it kind of a leading question because I ha- I have that experience sometimes where where people say there's no way there's there's no way that anything is wrong or it's like no it's all taken care of because we you know whatever you know we use the Kubernetes API we use Terraform whatever we have drift detection did you have moments where you could say to someone no 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 hold mm-hmm. on take a look did that ever do you know what I mean like did that ever happen yeah 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 like no there's no way that uh, my there's no way that we're exposed to blah blah blah. There's no way that uh, my th- that I have way too many things running, um, <laughs> and so like there were, I, I would say this happens to me about like at least once a month. Um, yeah. Where you and then I love uh, being able to go and find and shine a light underneath them, uh, underneath the rock, so to speak, you know. And then so being able to see things like, uh, well, especially because um, to do this with to do a lot of these things with say the normal web portal if you were to go into gcp yourself if you were to go into aws console yourself you'd be clicking through so many menus and then like that, that's no fun and then but yeah. when i'm able to show like a view i'm like yeah this is your view of everything you have by all account by every single thing well that's oh well you can't really deny that and then the, the best part is when you're able to grab a little bit of that data and then validate it for real Okay. Yeah. Right. It's the, your, your graph is like actually accurate up to this point. So yeah. And then you turn, you turn them into believers, right? <laughs> that's, that's the hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess one of the other things too, uh, since we were talking about a little bit about analysis, um, you're able, we're also able to do some very powerful things to reason about permission relationships, like say, in. um, uh, I mentioned a little bit before about how Bloodhound was focused on Active Directory. And then, well, when it comes to like the cloud and permission relationships, AWS IAM is complicated in itself too, where uh, if t- to answer the question of, is this given principle having permission to this specific resource? That's very, very difficult to answer in certain cases. And then um, reasoning about that, uh, good luck um there's nothing like in the window in windows like if you were to go click on a folder in a domain environment you can right click on that hit the security tab and say um view effective permissions and these are all the people that have access to this one entity mm-hmm. yeah aws doesn't really have that unless you pay for i forget what that product is called there's a number of different products that you have to pay for as add-ons but what we're able to do with cartography though is that you're able we evaluate all of the IAM policies that are attached to a given principle and evaluate that against all of the resources that are available in your account and then draw relationships that say this Mm -hmm. identity can read or can write this bucket. Uh, And then, you know, having it all exposed this way to do, if we were to do this in tables, I think it would have taken a lot more time. Oh yeah. 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 Most definitely. Yeah. And, um, what are some of the, how do you build out your use cases? Can you share some of the major, like there's gotta be some sort of library of use cases, writing queries, you know, you store them somewhere, you run them on a schedule. Can you talk about that a little bit? The use cases? I would say that the, the main way to think of use cases would be, I mean, 
when I think graph, I think question and answer service because you put a lot of data in there and you want to see how they're connected and then having them, I, I want to see, can I use this, uh, can I use this map that I have to get me something that I don't know? And then how mm -hmm. are those things connected? And then if the graph isn't able to tell that to me, if the graph isn't able to answer a question for me, I have to ask myself, well, why is it, do we have a gap uh, in support? Do we have uh, a correctness issue? Do we have something else going on there? Uh, is the graph the right answer for this problem? In some cases, no, that's not the case. Like uh, there's like scenarios where this approach, uh, where using the graph like does not work out. Like example, like if you want to do it for uh, near real time, if that truly is a need, don't use this approach because this is all like a heavy batch processing. But for a lot of cases, if you need to answer a question and if you don't need that question to be like within the, the second, then this is more than good enough. Yeah. Um, I would say that that's the general approach that I would go for finding scenarios with this. And that's something that has been, I would think about it like a Swiss army knife that in a lot of cases, it's been my experience where, the graph was able to get me maybe about 85% of a given problem. And then the last 15% needed me to code up a couple of other things. And then it would quickly get me there to the hundred percent. Right. Right. But I think you, you just laid out a really important concept because in the, in the world of security and monitoring and APM, it's always about real time or near real time, right? Um, and for good reasons, right? If you have production mm -hmm. issues, you want to know immediately, right? But this approach, I, I, I want to call it an analytical approach to infrastructure, seems to be fairly new. And, and the whole notion of uh, extracting data, putting into a single place for analysis, and then sort of use it as a foundational layer for long-term improvements, not to react real time, that doesn't seem to have taken hold with a lot of people so far. I see, I, I call it, we're peak XOps. There's a, there's hmm. a DevOps, DevSecOps, FinOps, well, you name it, right? There's like no shortage of XOps tools. And, and I feel like this is new. And when you do, like, I mean, you do a lot of community work too around cryptography. Is that something you, is that a point of view that you would share that it's now time for, an analytical approach to infrastructure data? I don't know if I would say something that, I don't know if I would be confident enough to say something that uh, I guess, um, what's the word? Bold maybe. Um, I, I think that there is a time and place for all of those different mm -hmm. approaches to go look at things. Uh, I, I would say that in my experiences in InfoSec, I can't imagine ever going back to a world where I don't have a capability like cartography, where I don't have an analytics capability of being able to say what, given this asset, what are the things related to it? And then being able to answer that question very quickly. And mm -hmm. if, uh, if I don't have that, I think that I feel like I'm totally in the dark. Um, yeah. and you know, like other, there's, you know, right tool for the job kind of thing. And then cartography is like, uh, in a lot of situations it can get you um, basically near uh, answering like all the questions that you, that, that you might need. Yeah. 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 And, and I think also the data collection approach is different, right? Lo lots of these other tools require installation of an agent, right? And that means there's some very, there's a proprietary perspective. Um, there's a different data format. 
so um maybe maybe can so we've covered a lot of ground in terms of like okay this is how we get the data in that's how we collect it this is how it's laid out and then can we talk a little bit more around now extracting insights from mm. from the data uh you know you mentioned how power users or have to learn a certain um i think it's near 4j cipher what is it called mm -hmm. cipher query language yeah, yeah. and then uh, remediation maybe is the next step. So can we talk a little about extracting data? Who are the people, power users, maybe not so many power users, and uh, how do you turn it into something actionable? How do you take action? Yeah, um, let me see. So the first example is that I'll, I'll kind of go a little bit more in depth about the container example before, mm -hmm. where uh, the whole point of building out a system like that was to uh, create a list of actionable things that people needed to do to fix the vulnerabilities on their container images. So uh, again, you know, you'll scan a service image, you'll calculate the dependency tree, tree graph of like all of those issues. And then um, you will say that uh, this, the payment service has a number of issues and these are the issues that it inherited. These are the issues that affect it right now. All right, for every single one of those things, let's build automation around that, that uh, sends a ticket to JIRA that says, all right, well, payment service needs to resolve CVEs one, two, and three, uh, and it's present in these packages. And I'm gonna go and assign that to the on-call for the payment service. Uh, be, and then we are able to do all that and correlate all of those things because it's in the knowledge graph also. Payment service has an entry in the graph uh, then that's uh, synced up and tied together with our pager duty data. So we know who is on call at that given time and we know who's the owner and we have attribution. We're able to tag them specifically in the ticket and uh, they're able to get that uh, list of specific things. Uh, not only do we tell them that, we also tie it to a specific GitHub PR. So we'll tell them that uh, this is the GitHub PR that you need to merge in order for this uh, set of issues to go away. And in some cases, we're not able to give a PR, but we're able to give, all right, well, this is the specific library that is affected. So you might want to look into, give a deeper look at that. And if you need help, reach out on this Slack channel, come talk to us. Um, that's sort of the general flow about being able to like ask the graph a question, correlate it with lots of other things, put all that context together in one place in that ticket, and then uh, send it out and then give uh, wrap, put a bow on it basically, and then at the nice. end of uh, and then at the end of all of it, the next part is reconciliation because uh, it's a really awful user experience to just throw ten thousand different tickets at people and yeah. then kind of, what, what are you going to do? Like you're going to expect them to go through every single one of those things and hit close? Like how do you how do you know whether something? How do you hold people accountable for that kind of thing? And then so. What we do is that, well, we maintain that state in the graph where the next scan will come back and then say, it'll be able to tell, oh, well, these are the issues that were remediated since last time. And this uh, this issue, which was tied to this service, uh, no longer exists. And then, uh, so therefore it was connected to the JIRA issue that we filed. And so therefore the linked JIRA issue, we, could, we identify that as being able to be closed. So we'll go and close and say, the issue has been resolved. Thank you for helping mm. us out, and then uh, we're able to track it that way. Okay, so so cartography actually understands the delta between two graphs. I I, I assume you take a snapshot, right, and then you, you're able to compare 
the two snapshots, understand the delta correlated with, in this case, a ticket, and you can mm. say thumbs up, thumbs down, resolved, not resolved. Well, let me see. So to explain that a little bit, um, cartography is all about point in time data. Um, mm -hmm. So it will only maintain the current timestamp of like all of your environment, everything else. Uh, so the, so in this case, like a, if a given scan has like a issues, has all those issues, but then, but the next scan has none of them, then the graph will show that it has no issues. And so it's kind of up to a separate system. It's up to some separate job to do that reconciliation. Um, because you know, like cartography just shows like the view of like what the world looks like. And then you'll, we have a separate set of uh, code that will be that uh, sort of issue management code and then uh, do that reconciliation um, and then say that, oh, you yeah, know, all those issues that cartography has uh, cleaned them up. And then so, all right, well, uh, now I know that they can be closed. Okay, so that's a that's a different piece of code. That's a different. You called yes. it issue man. Oh, okay, okay, yes. and that's not part of cartography. Uh, it acts on the graph, but it is. Uh, I would not consider that to be part of the code that updates the graph. If that makes sense. Like you'll have Good. a sort of a, a relationship where it's like you're building your map, and you have something else that consumes from the map, and then uh, makes a decision based off of what it sees. Which is uh, so so effectively use data out of cartography as an input to another piece of code that then acts based on that data, correct? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You can use this analytical thing as an automation platform, basically. Yeah. 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 And so, and at that point, you, you essentially have two pieces of the equation, right? You have an analytics part that extracts the data and, you know, maybe you know, surfaces uh, certain policies and rules. Um, or vulnerabilities, and then you take that as an input into the second piece, which is the automation or the governance piece, whatever you want to call it. And that now allows me to take action, perform an update, but also do the reconciliation between these two so mm -hmm. that, I, that I don't get completely blown over by a gazillion tickets in JIRA. Yep. Yep, that's the idea. I think Great. that uh, probably not... Yeah, again, like one of the things that uh, we said to ourselves when we were starting this, it's just, well, it's just not an ex acceptable user experience with the level of, with like the number of uh, what we got, thousand different services. And if you think about like every single month, if they're going to get hundred tickets each, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so is there something, is, I mean, if you told your users tomorrow, like, hey, sorry, we can't use cartography anymore. They would probably stage a revolution at that point. Um I don't but, know, uh, actually. I wonder. Like, I think that it uh, it does its job <laughs> behind the scenes. I think that uh, uh, it's not super, super visible. Again, I think that the reason for that is that, like we talked about earlier, the uh, I mean, I, I can we can I can talk about like how Cipher has like a really long, a big um, learning curve and things like that. But at the same time. Uh, you don't want your users, if, if even if it's SQL, you don't want your users to be running raw SQL anyway. So right, right, right. <laughs> right. So SQL, your database on the back end, it'll always be behind the scenes. It's just that it's the applications you build on top of that database, how you consume it. And I've just sort of been in the fortunate, unfortunate position of never having written front end code. <laughs> <laughs> Do so to really get the full 
to realize the full power of cryptography, do I need to become a power user? Like, do, what do I need to learn? Uh, do I need to learn Neo4j's cipher language or uh, what's, what's, I, there's always different sets of users, right? Um, yeah. What do you see? What type of users hmm. do you, do you see? What types of users, I guess, to get the most out of it, I think that it is worth learning the query language. And then toward that end, we have a number of different samples and uh, different things that you can, different, like, uh, I guess, cartography flavored um, samples that you can use that are uh, tailored to our specific schema. Mm -hmm. Understood. Yeah. Okay. And, and um, where else is cartography in use now? What other companies are using it? And, and uh, um, let's talk about the community a little bit. I know you have community meetups and everything. Like, let's, let's talk about the community building aspect of, of cartography. Yeah, I think that the, I guess one of the most exciting things about uh, having this out in open source is having the opportunity to sort of uh, meet all kinds of people from around the world. And then um, I think that we have, but then on, on the other hand, like I, I will, I'll say this first, like if you are out there, please come and say hi and please reach out. I would like to, yeah. I would love to learn more about who is using the tool, how you're using the tool. I'm giving a couple of ideas about how we use that lift. Is there something that uh, I'm missing? Is there some value or scenario that you're seeing that I'm not seeing? That's mm -hmm. what I absolutely want to learn about. Uh, but uh, for, of the people that have reached out to us, we have reached, uh, we have um, users from MessageBird, from Thought Machine. I, I believe that they are based in Europe. A mm -hmm. uh, couple of other, there's a good number of security SaaS companies that use us. Uh, ah. And then I think it's, uh, it, so that's been a pretty fun, that's been pretty interesting. And then um, I think everybody else, like, yeah, again, like I, I just really want to meet you. You know, we want to um, find out more about what those use cases are. Yeah, yeah, and that, we'll, that's we'll the hard part about open source, right? Like you're, uh, you put the code out there, but then you don't necessarily know who is uh, pulling it. Uh, you can see who forks it, but then you don't really see how it's being deployed or things like that. So, yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, you don't know how they're using it at that point. Yeah. Um, right. And in the episode, we'll link uh, uh, to the repo and 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 um, your LinkedIn profile. Uh, and we've we've done a lot of telling. Um, maybe maybe it's time to do a little showing. Like, can we move from the? Uh, sure. Can you maybe share your screen? Give us a quick demo. Show us around. Like, what's worthwhile seeing? Maybe some aha moment. I always like to see an aha <laughs> moment. Like, what's the first time when I use it? It's like, oh, now I get it. Sure. Let me mm -hmm. just go and get my thing set up. So I have a set of demos to play with. I have a test database. So uh, you. Can, so this is like assume that uh, you have mm -hmm. set everything up, and then you can you have run everything, and then I guess the first scenario that I would like to show. So this is. This is what the Cypher query language kind of looks like. And mm -hmm. so this is the scenario that we kind of talked a little bit earlier, where do I have a compute instance that is open to the internet that can that has a trust relationship with an AWS role? So if I'm on the instance, there is a something called an I am instance profile, which means that 
once you get there, you are able to dump creds on the box and mm -hmm. then assume the role that is associated with that instance. So what role is associated there and what trust relationships are attached to that initial foothold that you get and how many, and uh, how many hops does it take to get to a bucket that is your target? So in this case, this would be my bucket one, two, three. Mm -hmm. So if I run that, let me just expand this a little bit. Does it let me do that? Yeah, yeah, okay. So if I run, if I run that, I've got my bucket over here and then kind of working backwards, we can see that uh, this is the bucket. This is one of the rules. So there's a number of different roles that have read access to that bucket. And you see sort of this chain of this path of, there's a number of different attack avenues that I might um, want to look at if I'm, uh, if I'm, if I'm an offensive attacker. So I can get like one of these instances, assume this role, and then kind of hop mm -hmm. over a couple of times to get to my target. And then if I am, uh, I can also write some, I can also probably refine this query to make it uh, order it by like, oh, which is the shortest path to get there and things like that. But reason why I'm sharing this particular query is this is sort of the genesis, the uh, original motivation behind building this tool in the first place, being able to find these attack paths and then express them in um, in a visual way and being able to, uh, I mean, that whole uh, overused bit about attackers thinking graphs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So this is this is the first scenario I wanted to share. It's so, very consumable in terms of information, right? It's like it shows me <laughs> all the complexity, but in a simple graph. Like I can, it, otherwise, it, there's there's no way I could get from one asset to another one, right? It's it's just right. not possible. Right, and mm -hmm. then there's a couple of things going on here too, where it's like, okay, well, we keep that map of you know the trust relationships, but then this is what I was talking about earlier, where this can read relationship. Uh, this was developed by my um, my colleague Andrew. Where what we're doing is uh, we evaluate all the policies that are attached to this role against all the possible resources, and then after that computation, we uh, we are able to draw that edge, so that can mm. read edge. So that's that offline permissions evaluation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do, do, do you yeah, have a con sorry to interrupt? Do, do you have a concept of different edges? Is it like logical dependencies edges? You said like can read edge. Uh, does that concept exist in cartography? Yeah. Um, so with, we actually have, uh, we blogged about it here. So this, mm. uh, let me see, can read. Yeah. So we blogged about it in the, the post is called uh, I am whatever you say I am. And uh, we uh, did we go into like how this thing is 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 computed. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm gonna link. Um, we'll include a link to the episode awesome. uh, to that blog post. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll go on to sort of the next scenario that I have. This is something that I was working on just this week. So we're gonna shift gears a little bit from. So that's the attacker mindset, and so this is more about I am on the security team, this is my uh, kind of my infra mindset. Uh, one problem that I think a lot of people at cloud native companies are facing is how can I consolidate all of my accesses? If I have a lot of roles, how can I, is it possible for me to delete one? And if I delete one or if I remove an access, are there other ways for my users to 
uh, to, to still get what they need. So in this mm -hmm. case, we're looking for, again, my bucket one, two, three, are there, uh, are there principles, are there AWS principles that are not admin that still, and I want to kind of see also, are any of them assumable, a human assumable using Okta? Mm -hmm. And so in this example, we have my bucket, and then we have a number of different roles that are able to read and write to it. However, only one of them is actually uh, human assumable because this role has a um, Okta group. So has an Okta user that is a member of this Okta group, they will be able to assume this AWS role. And that is a feature of Okta. And then so if for whatever reason, you know, today, like I have this, I've been working on this this week where uh, I would have somebody on the Infra team come and say, hey, I lost access to this bucket. I can go and ask this question. Well, okay, what are other ways for you to get access? Would it make sense to include yourself here? And if not, you know, we, we should look mm -hmm. into creating another one for you that has that minimum set of permissions to get you there. Um, mm -hmm. So this sort of like a, helping you reason about your infrastructure, come up with a way to help out with least privilege principle. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And um, so that's one use case. And, uh, and, and this is Neo4j, what yes. we're looking at, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. This, uh, yeah. this is the UI that is presented by Neo4j. Mm -hmm. um, I do have one more scenario that I wanted to show kind of talking about the, let's see, let me do this. All right. So a lot, this kind of goes into how we were talking about graph versus table mm -hmm. and where I think a lot of infra teams um, want to know what is my inventory of all of the assets running on my account? And then how can I group them up by Kubernetes cluster, ASG? What are the tags on them? What's the storage attached to them? Just give me that. And then so if I look at it at a graph, it's sure, I mean, it's cool and all, but it's incomprehensible. I'm looking at this, I'm like, yeah, cool. I got my, I got my account over here. This is a ASG. This is a Kubernetes cluster, and then I got my number of instances. Sure, but you know, taking graph and then going, let's let's go to table now. So, like, what I want to do is, I want what I'm able to do is, if I put this here, if I just say, okay, from every single one of these nodes, I want to sort of get those attributes and show it to show it to me in a table view, and then it'll crunch through and then it'll just show me, okay, well, here's your, here's your report basically mm. where uh, this is my 10,000 different assets. This are, here they are grouped up by image ID type, launch date, account name, environment, and all sorts of other metadata that I have in certain cases. Uh, some of them have tags, some of them don't. Um, and then like uh, what we've done is, uh, what, what you can do is that, uh, like I said, cartography only shows point in time data. Mm -hmm. So this will take, this is only like at one given point in time, but uh, you can take uh, your, d do an ETL job or some other thing where you will take this data, load it on the hive, and then you will have that over time data that you can expose in some other dashboard for management and other purposes, all without oh. needing to write front end code. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that's how you get time series data. Okay. Yeah. As, um, uh, I, I just remember how, um, you know, Lyft, at, at least in the past, was a Redshift user, Amazon Redshift. I don't know if you've migrated. I mean, you, see, you just said Hive, but um, do you run analytics on this data somewhere else? I mean, obviously Hive, you just said. Like, is, is there anything mm -hmm. else? I don't know. Snowflake, Redshift, BigQuery. I am not a data engineer. I, don't, <laughs> I just know some of those words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Got it. Okay. But but matter of fact is that you're exporting this on a schedule. Yes. And and that's how you can start creating a timeline. Um, yes. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, cartography is point in time. Okay. Great. Uh, now, and we like four years in? You're four years in? Four years in. Yeah. Uh, Amazing. Congrats. Um, now, with these four years under your belt, if today you would, you, you, let's, let's assume you had to rebuild cartography. Let, let's just say there's a need for all these use cases you've built. What would you do differently? Would you do, <laughs> would you do it the same way over again? Like with all the lessons oh. learned, what would be different? I think that we would introduce abstractions earlier. Um, I think mm -hmm. that every software project has, uh, it's a, there's a spectrum, right? Like a, either you, either you introduce a bunch of abstractions early on, and but when I mean abstraction, I mean like, because um, right now the code is written in a way that you're essentially copy pasting different modules, and then it's very error prone to write these queries to load data to the graph, and it's very they're handwritten essentially. I would. Uh, we we have uh, worked on to put a lot of work into building our own data model around that, and then making it so that newcomers to new developers don't need to worry about those fiddly things mm -hmm. like uh, getting the particular like IDs correct or whatever. Um, if we could do it again, I think that I would do that earlier so that uh, kind of get more people. Uh, able to contribute faster and then make it so that we're able to grow faster in terms of like the test coverage and make it so that uh, we don't have, uh, we can have that confidence that uh, like the goal that we've always been trying to have is like make it so that if a test passes, then we can, if all tests pass, uh, we should be able to accept your code. Like that is the, the dream state to be in. Yeah. Um, in a lot of cases, uh, this hasn't been the case for us, but we're, that's sort of been our, um, our dream. And then so coming back, going back in time, like uh, I think that we would try to introduce that earlier, try to prioritize that a little bit earlier. What other things? I think technology choice, I mean, graph, that was, it was always going to be graph. I think that we made a conscious decision to keep it easy to adopt without being of uh, taking dependence, heavy dependency on like a specific architecture. Uh, like I said, like it's a kind of, keep it simple, like make it like a up to the deployer, how complicated you want to make this to be. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think that uh, that would be the big one, like having, um, making it, trying to prioritize that, uh, let it so that it's easy to contribute and um, easy to accept, easy to say yes. That's a, that's yeah. it in a nutshell. Yeah. 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 Great, but no, no major fundamental changes, as in you said. You, you would still go with a graph database, and that's oh my god, had I known this, we would have done this. Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah. Correct. I yeah. think that also 
knowing what I know now, I think that I would probably also uh, maybe be a little bit more clear and upfront about the things about what the tool is and what it isn't. Um, mm -hmm. Like saying, making that conscious decision upfront that this is point in time only. This is what we do. We don't, uh, we will not do historical. You want to do historical, you will do something else. Uh, because I think that a big part, like uh, it's really important for the identity of a tool is defined not only by what it is, but also by what it isn't. And then so yeah. like in this case, it's like, we're, we're not historical. We are not real time. Uh, however, we are analytical and we cross correlate and you can get a lot out of that and you can augment the shortcomings by having separate systems make up for that. Yeah. Yeah. Taking notes here for, uh, for the summary, uh, because I think you're listing some amazing insights here. Uh, what, you know, the one final, I have, I have so many more questions, but we have limited time. Um, your queries, is that, what is the type of collaboration around those queries? You know, because there's all sorts of intelligence in those queries to detect vulnerabilities, misconfigurations. Um, is there like a common repository where like, how do you collaborate on that? And how do you make sure that that knowledge gets dissipated throughout the organization and other users of cryptography? Mm -hmm. I think that for anything, so for anything um, sufficiently complicated, we try to have like a, like a one page or spec about like how we want to model something. And then we uh, solicit input from the community. Mm -hmm. We've done a number of those open public documents, such as like a, this is how we want to evaluate those permission relationships. And then we've shared those widely. And then, so we get community feedback on that. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. And then we, uh, once the decision is made and once it's all uh, implemented, we try to uh, document it in the schema, but there's also mm. simple cases where it's like fairly uncontroversial where it's just like, yeah, well, this belongs in an AWS account. So of course I'm going to draw an edge there. And then it's very powerful where you have like one type connected to another type, to another type, to another type. It's like, oh, just, uh, then you kind of build on top of that and then, uh, and then there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. So, um, if people want to work with cartography and if they want to communicate with you, what's the best way to reach you? We do have a Slack channel. Um, oh. just go uh, to github.com slash lift slash cartography and, uh, come say hi on Slack. Awesome. Uh, Alex, anything we didn't cover that we should cover. I think we covered a lot, but this is pretty amazing. Anything, anything I forgot to ask that I should have asked. No, I think that, uh, it's been fun. Thank you for very much for having me. Uh, this was super valuable. I love it. Um, so Alex, thank you very much. Uh, this was an amazing episode and, um, I say that with every episode, it's like we got to do a follow up six months, nine months road, nine months down the road. So this was exciting. Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, Chintavi from uh, from Lyft. Stay on, Alex. <laughs>